the sequel sequel. All right, so we're gonna pick this up again. Uh, Micah chapter six, verse eight. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. What we're going to talk about today is understanding justice in the context of ourselves and our spiritual condition. Understanding it in the context of ourselves and our spiritual condition. Matthew 25 gives us a clear picture of Jesus saying that the concept of doing for the least of these was as if you had done it for him. You know, when we talk about this concept of justice, um, you know, Jesus did two illustrations in in Matthew 25. He talked about um, going and doing, and so the people responded and they said, well, when did we see you? like this, and he said, well, as often as you did, you know, this list of things to, to the least of these, and it's as if you've done it unto me, but he also then turned around in the next portion, which we really, we don't use very often, and we mention it often here because of it keeping a balance in our minds, is he also said that if you do not do for the least of these, it was as if you had refused to do that for him. And so, in the context of us understanding justice from a biblical standpoint, then we have this very real picture of Jesus saying, you're going to visit those that are in prison. You're going to provide a cup of water or maybe clothing or, or food or whatever it is for the least of those. And to put it into a perspective that would allow us to grasp it because he knew that we were going to struggle with the idea of doing these things sometimes for people. And so Jesus gave us a different goal or a different focus point because quite honestly there are times where in reality if you were doing something for someone alone you would not do it for them because their response, their attitude, their, their approach, their, their um, demeanor, what you think caused it, and we're going to talk about some of that today, um, would, would cause us to say, I'm not going to do this. I'm, I'm not going to provide. I'm not going to minister to someone. I'm not, uh, how do you go visit someone in prison that, that you clearly know, and maybe they even admit that, yes, they did a terrible, terrible crime for a lot of people. They would say, there is no way that I, I, I would go and, and be missed. This person has, and they don't even show remorse. But yet, Jesus said, when you're, when you're reaching out and, and ministering to people, you're doing it as if you're doing it unto, unto me. Do all things as unto the Lord. Why? Because he, he knew there was going to be a struggle. But, but how did this idea of Matthew 25 and, and Jesus telling them that you do unto the least of these, or it's, if you didn't do unto the least of these, it was as if you'd refused to do for him. How did that affect 
the New Testament church during Paul's time. And I'm going to be honest with you, a lot of people stay away from this stuff. It's, just, it's not popular. This topic that we've been dealing with is not a popular topic. It's not something, obviously, it's not something that you fill the church up with because people, we don't like this concept. We want to talk about, tell me about how God wants to bless me. And quite honestly, in a, in a lot of places, what we want to talk about is, hey, I just want to come in. I want to get a little bit of praise on I want to have a good time, and then I want to I want to go away, you know, feeling like I got a little rejuvenated because we we had great music and we jumped around a little bit, and 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 somebody you may have run around a little bit or whatever else, and that's 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 what we want because we want that, but yet to be shaped and made like Christ, and to find the truth of of His Word and and how it's going to lead us is is the goal and the aim for me. So how did this Matthew 25 teaching affect the New Testament church? Well, in Acts chapter 4, here's what we see. Acts chapter 4, we see, he says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Verse 35, They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, the reason that people stay away from, from these passages is because God wasn't advocating communal living. God wasn't advocating that there needed to be some, everybody go sell everything you have and then give it away, because if everybody sold everything they had and gave it away, then nobody, well, so then that person sells it. I mean, you're going to run out of people to sell and give away at some point. But he was teaching a concept he was teaching a concept, and there were people that that was their particular response that they had, was that they would take things and they would go and sell them, and so they would provide. When they saw a need, they found a way to provide for that need. It also reflected the understanding of the property rules that God had established in Deuteronomy chapter 15. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4, he said this. He said, There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. You know, why, and we talked a little bit last week about why that was. Why is that? Because in Leviticus chapter 25 and 23, he said, The land will not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. So think about what these people in the New Testament, what their concept was. They looked and they said, all right, I have something. It really doesn't belong to me because it's not sold in perpetuity. It's not some permanent thing. It belongs to God. And so I go and I sell something that belongs to God in order to provide for someone who then is in need. Luke chapter 10 really put this concept to the test. In Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? The guy responded, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This lawyer responds, and he, he questions to, to, to Jesus. He says, what do I have to do? I want to know what I have to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus answers him and says, well, you're going to... He says, well, what do you find written in the law? What do you find in the law? 
And so this guy answers, and he gives a solid response. And he quotes the law back, and he, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus responds to him, and Jesus says, Hey, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. It's an interesting concept. We usually focus purely on the neighbor concept in this. We, talk, we just talk about, oh, well, see, he's talking about your neighbor. And we're going to talk about the neighbor thing here in a moment. But more importantly, one of the things that he says, Jesus tells him there is something for you to do. The guy says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says, well, what is the law? And he tells him, and he says, all right, then do it. Do what is in the law then. If you'll do what is in the law, then you will live. But the man said, desiring to justify himself, well, who's my neighbor? I was thinking as I read that this past week, you know, this really has long been the response of believers as we're affected by the things of the world. I understand what you've said, God, but exactly who do I have to fulfill this for? You know, that's where we start narrowing it down. We go, wait a minute, okay, I see that I can't deny what the Word of God says. I see that I can't get past that the Word says this, but can we narrow down who it is that that has to apply to, God? Can we, can we narrow that down as to making this a little more palatable for who it is that I have to do that action for? And it, it, we saw it in the Scripture. Look, look at what the guy said. It says there, he says, but he desiring to justify himself. He, he wanted to be able to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now let me justify my actions. Because he, he knew that his next concern was, what if Jesus says, well, have you been doing this to your neighbor? Have you been following and fulfilling this action with your neighbor? And what if, so he got ahead of the curve. He went, wait a minute. I need to go ahead and get this to where this can just be a certain group of people and that's who I'm going to justify myself to. I understand what you've said, but exactly who do I have to fulfill this for? Remember last week we looked at Luke chapter 14, verse 12, he said, he said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they will invite you in return and you'll be repaid. Man, if you start looking at the entirety of Scripture, then you start seeing these themes that run through. And so he says, he teaches about your neighbor. He teaches about that you need to do the action, not just know the action. It's one of the things that Stephen and I heard the guy talk about there in Uganda. It's not, he says, in America, you teach people to know the commands. Here, we teach people to obey the commands. People want to know what Jesus said. They want to know what God can do for them. He said, but yet here, we teach people, obey what Jesus has said for you to do. Obedience is better than sacrifice. So I understand what you've said, this, this, this lawyer who's prepared. Yet, have you ever noticed, I think spiritually, it, 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 we tend to breed within the church world, we tend to breed a lot of spiritual lawyers because we come up with more arguments and more defenses and more ways to say, wait a minute, God, I don't think 
And that's always when my ear perks up when I hear somebody say, but I don't think that God would have... See, that, that spiritual legal speak right there. We went into spiritual lawyer mode of, I can't imagine that God would ever... I can't conceive of a God that would... I just couldn't serve a God that would... So we begin to shape him. We begin to form him. We begin to make him into what we think he must be like. Anthropomorphism is part of it. As we take things that we see in, in human beings and mankind and we try to project that onto God and say, well, God must be like us because we get this backwards. We look at our flawed sinfulness and say, well, God must be like us because we were made in His image, when in reality, we're reflecting a poor image and we need to be shaping ourselves to be more like God, not trying to shape God to be more like us. And we think, you know, we think with this concept of no other gods, we think, well, you know, man, I don't believe in worshiping some other named God or whatever, but when we create him to be something other than who he is, it is another God. And you remember Paul wrote to one of the churches at one point, and he says, why is it that you believe another gospel? Remember, we covered that. You believe in another gospel, which is not even a gospel. No other gods. I want to ask you this. This has been, this, I'm, I'm fixing to ask you two questions that's, that's leading into something. It has been the hardest thing for me this week. It really has been the hardest concept out of all of this. There's two questions. I, and y'all got to answer. When, when do you eat? All the time. <laughs> In the most simple, when do you eat? When you get hungry, all right? When you get something to drink. When you get thirsty. Hold on to that concept. Matthew 22, verse 37 through 39. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, let's get another look at it. Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Okay, let's get another look at it. Romans chapter 13, verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All right, let's get another look at it. Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> Let's get another look at it. James chapter 2, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Think about this. So why, why is it? I, I, when something gets repeated over and over through Scripture and different writers and to different churches and to different groups of people, Matthew 25, he told them, love the Lord your God. That's the first and the great commandment. And the second one is like it. It's also like, what? it's like it. So you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second one is like it because you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. So it's somehow similar to the idea of loving God. Mark turns around and, and basically provides the same the same story and says the same thing. You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment greater than these. Now listen to that. So loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself, and he says there's no other commandments that are greater than these. Nothing else that gets commanded is greater than these two things. But then again, if you put them together, does it not sum everything up? Love the Lord your God, all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, all that, and then love your neighbor like yourself. So love God, love others. There's not anything any greater than that. And then in Romans, he turns around and tells the church there in Rome, hey, you've got all these commandments about not committing adultery, not murdering, don't steal, don't covet, and any other commandment. He says, any other commandment. They're all summed up in this one. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's an unconditional love. It's a love that we unconditionally love each other per God's standard. And this, this passage in Romans, which to me is, is one of the most powerful ones because we like to get hung up on these commandments about don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. Those are the ones that we feel like we don't do. I, I want to I stay for a moment in this Romans 13. This, this portion of this message is what... I, I struggle with this one. I'm just being, not, not just this verse. I, I struggle with this portion of this message. This is the part that God is working on me the hardest with. And, and that becomes a challenge then even if we have things happen, you know, like, like are happening this morning. And so, and so it, sometimes it's just a test. <laughs> it's just a test. Not that it, but it's just a test. And, and you're going to know why here in just a moment. But when I, when I was reading this, the commandments, you, won't, you shouldn't commit adultery, you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't covet. And then he says, and that's all summed up, and it's you'll love your neighbor. So, you know what? If you love your neighbor, then you want the best for him. So you don't, you don't sit there and, and go to the point of coveting what he has and wish you had it instead of him because you don't think he deserves what. Instead, when you love your neighbor as yourself, you want him to have just what you would have. You, you, you don't want you to take his wife, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to be with that person's. If you're a woman, you wouldn't want to be with their husband. If you're a man, you wouldn't want to be with, their, with his wife because you love him or you love her as being your neighbor as yourself. And so you would not want to take from them what you would not want taken from you. You wouldn't want to murder them because you would value their life just like you value your own life. You wouldn't steal from them because you wouldn't want somebody to steal from you, so you love them as yourself. 
See, so he says it's all summed up in this. See, we get hung up about trying to say, well, wait a minute, I don't see anything in the Scripture that teaches against this or that. Well, then sum it all up in this one thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Paul tells them in Galatians, he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And James, you know, the brother of Christ, ends up saying, hey, if you can really fulfill the royal law, man, I mean, he really, he really puts some emphasis on it. This is a royal law. This is a kingly law. This is nobility. You love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing well. But when, I, when you stop and you think, because I ask two questions, you know, when do you eat when I get hungry? When do you get something to drink when I get thirsty? We don't wait until we are in extremity before we do something about our condition. So why do we wait until our neighbor is literally starving before we help? I started thinking about when I was a kid and when missionaries would come. What's, what's the, what is the, right now they do it on television. They do it on television. Um, they do it for, um, they do it both for the ASPCA, for the, for the animals, and then they do it for people. And what do they show? They show an animal that has been beaten, that is scarred, that is all stuff. Why? Because it, it draws an emotion from you. They so show children that, that their arms are, you know, about like broomsticks, but their stomachs are swollen and all that stuff. Why? Because if you show, and I will tell you this, I was showing someone pictures from our trip to Uganda, and this is a response. They didn't think about it, and I didn't even think about it until today. I was showing them pictures, and they said, well, wow, they look like they're well-fed. And they were going, they, 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 don't look, they don't look like, and I said, oh, why? Because you're used to seeing the pictures on television of, of a, with a stomach swollen out to here and the look. Yes, yes. They don't look, and I said, guys, they once a day, and I started explaining, and they're going, but they don't. See, in our minds, even though we don't like to admit it, we look and go, well, they're not at the point of starving, so I really don't have to do anything. In loving our neighbor as ourselves, when we get hungry, we go to the kitchen and get something to eat, or we go send somebody to the store and get something. When we get thirsty, we go stop and get us a, a, a Coke or a Dr. Pepper, whatever it is you want, or a cup of coffee. Or, but yet we can look at somebody else and go, they don't look like they're that bad off. Even in church, it can turn that way sometimes. Somebody in the church, you know, is going through some difficult, and we go, well, I mean, they they're not losing their house, they ain't lost their car, and they're like, why? If, if you were in difficulty, you wouldn't want everybody in the church looking and go, well, we're not going to do anything to help you because you haven't lost a car yet. You haven't had to sell your house. You hadn't, see, when it, we do stuff for ourselves when we're not in extremity. We do stuff for ourselves when we begin to feel the pressure of something before it gets bad. But I had to ask myself, the more I was going through this, I mean, it's not just for you guys, it's for me too. I had to ask myself, God, how many times have I looked and said, well, yeah, you know, they can't be that bad off of me now. They'll figure it out. They'll sell some things. They'll do some whatever, you know. And 
And, I, and don't misunderstand. I, I, I'm not laying out a blanket thing here to say, well, in every situation and in every little thing and all of this, but it's the concept of how we view stuff, of how we view these things and whether we love our neighbor as ourselves. Ironically, in, in, even in our culture, we can know that we need to pay a bill next week and go, yeah, but I really like that shirt or I really like that dress or I really like that, that you know, thing that I wanted from a truck or from a car or whatever else and I, I can pay it late or whatever. But then somebody who doesn't have something, they get, we, we provide them, oh my goodness, what are they doing eating that pastry? They should have went and bought some vegetables or whatever, you know, I, why would they be buying something that's, that's wasteful? But love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, I told you this was difficult. Many people object we shouldn't help people who are not grateful for the assistance that we provide. I'll read you a quote from Jonathan Edwards. He said, Christ loved us and was kind to us and was willing to relieve us, though we were very hateful persons of an evil disposition, not deserving of any good, so we should be willing to be kind to those who are very undeserving. If you had something come up in your life today and you went and prayed to God, what if God at times treated us the way that we have treated others when it comes to loving our neighbor as ourselves. What if God said, well, I'll tell you what, you go get all your stuff straightened up, and then when you're deserving, then I'll do this for you. We say, wait a minute, wait a minute, though. But they caused their own situation. Christ found us in the same condition. Our sin caused our spiritual bankruptcy, but yet Jesus came and He delivered us. We can't blame it on anybody else. It's on us. It's, it's our actions. It's, it's our choices. And Only when we see that we've been saved graciously by someone who owes us the opposite will we go into the world looking to help absolutely anyone. Jesus did not owe us anything. God's choice to save us. Our sin, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is it. Listen to that. Think about that verse. He says, what we deserve, what we had earned, the wages was death. But the gift of God an undeserved, that's why, we, that's why we talk about grace, that it's, it's undeserved, it's unmerited favor. His grace. We can't say, I got saved because I deserved it. We can't say, I got, uh, I got saved because I had earned something. Instead, what I had earned was death. But even while I had created my situation, I deserved to receive something else. God, in His mercy and His favor, looked down at me and looked down at you and he said, I am going to extend unmerited favor to you. Not because you deserve it, 
Not even because in your situation right now that you will even act like you care. If anything, in all honesty, we would all have to admit that there were times in our lives before we came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, there were times in our lives where we had heard the message. We had heard the gospel proclaimed. We had seen the gift extended and offered, and yet we turned our backs and we walked away. We showed no appreciation for what Jesus had done on the cross. Until finally, at some point in time, we respond. We, we, that, so, it's awakened in our heart, and we respond to Christ. But in all honesty, up until the, so when we look sometimes and say, well, wait, how come there's not a gratefulness? How come? And I'm going to be honest with you. I struggle with that. I wrestle with that concept. I wrestle with the concept of justice, of you know, love my neighbor as myself, even though I realize that at times I don't show proper appreciation for even things that happen in my life. I know that. Look, every every lady in here, if they were gonna, you know, be honest about and some of them they'd probably like to be honest right now, but that's a yeah, there's times where I've cooked and I've cleaned and everything else. And my husband, he showed no appreciation for any of it. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> Sorry, guys. And the guys mowed the grass and, and worked on the cars and did everything else. And, you know, okay, I was trying to balance it out for us. And, and, and you know what? And we look at each other and go, well, see that? Oh, now, that's what you're supposed to do, and this is what I'm supposed to do. And, you know. <laughs> but only when we see that we've been saved graciously by someone who owes us the opposite can we go into the world and give people something that they don't deserve. Because we understand that we received something that we did not deserve. We understand the whole relationship that we have with Christ is not based on merit, but it is based on grace. There are two great motivations in doing justice. One of these is all before the goodness of God's creation. We'll talk about that for just a moment. And the second is experiencing God's grace in this process of redemption. God's creation includes mankind. So this all before the goodness of God's creation. God's creation includes people. And people unique to everything else that He created were created in His image. Some thumbprint, some fingerprint, some something that created in His image. James in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 actually was talking about the tongue and he said, no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Listen to what he said. He didn't just say, well, you know, you speak bad about people. He, he put this tag on it to remind us of something. You speak badly of people. You curse people who were made in the image of God. He's, he, he's trying to prompt us to say, think about it. Think about what you're, you are speaking ill of something that was created in the image of God. Mankind has that unique thing about us as a creation. I was reading a story about Mount Vernon, you know, home of George Washington. 
It's actually not the greatest example of Virginian plantation homes in its area. You know, it's not, it's, there's, there's much more grand plantations, homes, and you know, that show examples of that architectural style and all of that. So why is it that we honor it and we maintain it and protect it? Why does it matter? Obviously it's not the home because in comparison to other homes, it's not as grand or as great. There, there could be other ones that were far greater. But for some reason, we honor that home, we maintain that home, we protect it. Because we treasure the owner, we treasure his house. Because it was precious to him and we revere him, we treasure it also. So we must treasure each and every human being as a way of showing due respect for the majesty of their owner and their creator. So I was going through that. This week it dawned on me. That almost is one of the core ideas of why abortion continues to be so powerful in our country. Because we have reached a point where we no longer, when we ruled God out as the creator, then we no longer had to respect the house because of the owner. I mean, we look and we see, it's almost, it seems like lately it's almost every week there's something showing up on the news, a policeman that gets killed, or somebody else that gets shot, or, uh, you know, and just, just blatant disregard for life. Because once you rule out George Washington, then his house no longer matters. It's not important anymore because we don't, care about the owner, we don't care about the creator, then it doesn't matter. I mean, we okay, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, builds all these homes and all these designs. Why do people want to maintain that stuff? I mean, there's there's more fancy homes that are out there because we value the 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 architectural design that he did. We value all this stuff. So all of a sudden people want to maintain the house. Why are people making such a big deal about this house? Is it in Piedmont? Or Heflin? There's a there's a house over there that that um you know, why, why aren't people? Because we, we attach some value because of when something was built, who built it, what it represented, what it reminds us of, but yet people bear the image of God. When we look at each other, more importantly, let's step away from that because it's easier for us when we look at each other in these four walls. Because we go, oh, you know, it's people that want to come to church and enjoy church. We can look at each other, oh, yes, I see God in you. <laughs> right? You know? All right, what about, what about, right, let's, be, let's be real. We've got a real example. What about when you're, when you're flipping through the paper? What about if people interrupt? What if, do we still understand? Do we still understand every person was created in the image of God? Do we value the person because they are, the Bible talks about now that we become the temple. We can become the place then where he dwells. So do we value his house, his potential house, because we value him? Really when you get down to it, a lack of generosity is a refusal to recognize that the assets that you have are not really yours but they belong to God, including you, because you're his house, right? 
you're his temple. A couple of quick things. Responding to God's grace. So, so we see the, the, uh, the awe of God's creation, but what about being a part of his redemption process, responding to grace? Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 16 through 19. He says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Listen, he says, he says it's a heart thing. If we were going to really put this in context, we would have to remember that circumcision was an outward sign of covenant. And he says, look, you got outward stuff. You, you've, you've done those things. But I'm telling you that there needs to be a heart change. There's a heart condition that needs to change to show that we are in covenant. And not only that, but quit being stubborn. You're being stubborn. You're being stiff-necked. Why? Because he says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who's not partial, takes no part. Remember, we, we did this one the first week. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, because you were once sojourners in the land of Egypt. This one he said, he said, look, you need to get a heart change and you need to quit being stubborn. And you need to start loving people. And you need to start, start providing. You need to start doing some of these things. Why? Because that's who the Lord your God is. If you are going to bear His image, then reflect an accurate image. Now, it doesn't mean all of a sudden we got some switch we can flip and all of a sudden we're this perfect reflection of God. But that is what we're striving to become. And instead of going, oh, look how great we are and, and look, hey, we've built bigger buildings. And what, wait a minute, there was a rich guy that had that problem one time, remember? He's like, oh, look, I've had this great stuff and I've built barns. I'm going to tear down my barns and build me some bigger barns. We could apply that to church. We could say, look, I'm going to have to tear this down and build a whole lot bigger and all this stuff. Look what we're doing. And God says, oh, it's your soul's required of you. That stuff's really not going to matter. It's just, hey, the Lord your God is the one who does these things, so stop being stubborn and do like God. I keep saying it. I, I, I don't like WWJD. I just don't like it. What would Jesus do? I want to just do what God did. We already know. He's already told us, this is the kind of God that I am. These are the, this is my character. So we don't have to, what would Jesus do? Well, what did Jesus already do? What did God do? What did God say that he was? And then he tells us, hey, do this stuff. Isaiah 58, verses 2 through 7, he says, They seek me daily and they delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. He says, hey, these people, they delight, they, they seek me every day and they say they want to know my ways like as if they were a nation that did righteousness and hadn't forsook the judgment of God. They ask me for righteous judgments. I feel like that almost every time that something on a national level happens to us. And here we are, a nation aborting children by, by the, the, the thousands, the, you know, every single week, just, just 
crazy numbers that, that we, that we are, are, are having some of the conversations that we're legislating some of the things that we are, that we are promoting sin and all the things that we're doing. And then something happens on a national level and we stop and we want to say, oh God, give us, give us a righteous judgment. He says, they delight to draw near to God and this is what they say to him. He says, why have we fasted and you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you're not taking notice of what I'm doing, God? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. Listen to that. He says, oh, you're over here. You're doing religious things. But yet in the day of fast, you're doing it for yourself and at the same time, you're oppressing other people. But yet you're over here saying that you're going you're gonna to fast and you won't, and, and how come I don't see it? In other words, what you're doing is, he says, you're doing religious activities in order to curry my favor and get me to do something for you. In fact, he said, behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. And we read this portion last week. We just didn't read the, the backstory that we've just read. Is such a fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? <coughs> to loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself? from your own flesh. But then I have to ask myself this. This is a side note and it's free. So when you fast, what do you do with that food that you would have eaten or what do you do with the money that you would have used to buy food when you were fasting? Do we turn around and say, hey, you know what? Maybe I should really make this something that is truly important and say, all right, I'm going to take that money then and I'm going to go provide for somebody that's in need or I'm going to provide... Maybe it's some ministry in town that, that feeds or whatever. Hey, I'm not just going to fast and, oh, but hey, I saved some money too because I didn't even eat for the last week. And we, man, we're doing a little better on groceries. Than... That one was free, I'm sorry. <laughs> James chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, wrapping up. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Here's a verse that we always use. This next verse. We always use this alone. We always use this verse alone. We don't put it with these other ones. So, all right, so let me go back for a second. I'm going to read it all the way through. You get the whole context. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. As you say, so somehow you see a need, you have a way to supply the need, and you say, hey, I hear you, I know you have a need. Go have your need be filled. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Be blessed, you know. Go your way. So what good is that? What good did that do? Oh, because you recognize the need? So you saw the need? You realize somebody had a need? I'm going to be praying for you. 
Be blessed. He says, that, what good is that? In the same way, then faith, if there are no works, is dead. Wow, what a, what a contrast. So how do we change our mentality? How do we change our mentality? Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. I've never thought about this. It's a little bit of a play on words. but Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I was reading an article this week, and the guy asked this question. Are we poor in spirit, or maybe middle class, or even rich? <laughs> I told you, this is hard, man. This is hard on me. I sure think poor in spirit. What do we, when, when we think about somebody being poor in spirit, and we don't think about somebody being all, you know, down in the dumps and all, but, but we think of somebody being humble. We think of somebody not being self-exalted. We think of somebody that is, that is meek, but yet uh, we see all the other things that balance out in the scripture, you know, about being courageous and all that stuff. But we're poor in spirit. Brokenness. When, when people get broken, they, they, boy, the haughtiness and stuff goes, go, goes away. When you, so poor in spirit. And he says, if, if we really were poor in spirit in looking at each other and loving our neighbor as ourselves, we would recognize and see. I'm going to go back to this statement time and time again, probably till I die, when we see that we're all poor in some way. We're all broken. But yet God, through Jesus Christ, wants to come and make us whole. But a middle-class spirit says, well, you know, I accept God, but I don't really need God. And a rich in spirit says, I really don't have need of anything. I can, I can take my ease. A poor in spirit mentality changes how we see each other. And I'm going to be honest. This is, I don't have this one learned yet. I really don't have this whole concept of this justice thing down. I just don't. I'm, I'm trying to learn it, and God just keeps putting real-life examples in my path of trying to figure out how to then deal with it and how to apply it. It's one thing for me to stand up here and say, well, if people don't act like they're, they're grateful or whatever else, you know, and, and, and then it can happen. And then I've got to make a decision, and I've got to figure out, okay, God, how do I deal with that? What about, you know, when, I know Angie sees it, you know, and anybody that's been around any of these other ministries, I mean, you'll see you're, you provide one thing, and somebody actually will say, well, that's not what I wanted. And our natural person, our natural mind says, ungrateful, boogity-boogity-boo, you know, whatever it is you're thinking in your mind, you know? What? You know? I mean, yeah. I mean, and you know what we say? We got sayings for it, right? We have sayings for that. We say, beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> right? I mean, we develop... We developed our own mentality that, that, with our own saying. Beggars can't be choosers. Love your neighbor as, as yourself. Are we poor in spirit or maybe we're middle class?
Last slide. Justification is the key. What? <laughs> what is that? You know, you've heard, I've heard people use the, the phrase and say, oh, justification, you know, it's just as if I'd never sinned. You've been, you've been put back in right sin and all that stuff. If we really understand justification, then it changes how we then can love our neighbor as ourselves. And we know we don't deserve it. We, we absolutely did not deserve being justified. We, did, we didn't deserve justification. It goes back to that concept, we don't deserve what Jesus did for us, that the wages that we earned were one thing, but the free gift that he gives is something else. And so if we grasp that, I have received, I got grafted into this family by grace. He justified me because he extended grace and mercy. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. Therefore, I can give to people. Peter, you got, you got all these, you got these disciples and they're, they're heading up to the temple and what happens? We remember there's a, there's a guy that's there and he's begging alms. And what do they stop and say? They said something very important. He says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I'm going to give to you. So rise, take up your bed, and walk. I often have wondered about that scripture. If we understand that we should be giving other people such as we have, what have we received? I received unmerited grace, unmerited favor. I received his love when I didn't deserve it. I received justification when I could not earn it. I received his compassion when I did not want it, but because I needed it, such as I have, give unto others. Let's pray.